Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together, we'll explore a number of the issues that were raised by the testimony of Gage Grosskreutz, the only witness who survived being shot by Kyle Rittenhouse. Our discussion of this week's testimony is coming up right after the break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And now, my conversation with Georgetown law professor and criminal defense attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thanks for joining us again. My pleasure, Carrie. So what did you make so far of Mr. Grosskreutz as a witness? Well, I confess I was kind of loving him on direct examination. I thought he was a good witness. One of the best witnesses the prosecution has called. He seemed smart, considered, sincere, careful, but not careful in a dodgy, evasive sort of way. That was my impression on direct examination. Things unraveled a bit on cross-examination in a way that I think Binger and the prosecution team should have anticipated and taken the sting out of that. That's an expression we use in trial advocacy. When you know that on cross-examination, an area of examination can be exploited powerfully, rather than leave that to the cross-examination you address it on direct, generally speaking, in the middle of a direct examination to kind of diffuse it and neutralize it a bit. And I'm left surprised about why the prosecution did not do that. And I mean, in particular, with regard to some of the inconsistencies between Grosskreutz's testimony at trial and various statements he had given law enforcement, the fact that he'd retained an attorney and filed a lawsuit against the city of Kenosha. Those things are just easy to get out. If you leave it for cross, then it seems explosive, like somebody somewhere has been trying to pull the wool over the jury. And I just think that could have been handled much more artfully if it had happened during the direct examination rather than leaving it for the cross. Well, I thought we had a hint that the prosecution had not prepped Grosskreutz as thoroughly as one might have wanted them to when he said that he did not pull out his gun until after the shooting started. Agreed. That was not a good moment. But I thought Binger handled that as artfully as he could or gracefully as he could. It's never a good feeling to have a witness say something other than what you expect him to say. And Binger 
kind of pivoted back and sort of refreshed the recollection of the witness without it seeming to be too confrontational and kind of got him to correct that statement. And I thought he did it without drawing too much attention to it. And I didn't think Grosskreutz had like clobbered himself by appearing too cagey by half at that point. It just sort of seemed like a peculiar bluster. Yes. Well, let's go back and track the direct examination for a minute. It began with Grosskreutz talking about his profession, which I thought was sort of clever and convenient for the prosecution, because while Rittenhouse had presented himself that night as an EMT, when his only real training appears to have been as a lifeguard, Grosskreutz has sort of walked the walk. He was an EMT, and then he became became paramedic and he walked the jury through that. Did that feel as effective to you as it did to me? Yes, very much so. I thought that portrayed Grosskreutz as a kind of credible guy. He sounded well-educated. He sounded like a serious you know, medical professional or paraprofessional. I thought he was kind of appealing in the way he talked about that. It was a good way of humanizing him and establishing his credibility. The other thing that Binger did right off the bat was get out there that Grosskreutz had a criminal record, but didn't linger on that at all. Well, you know, that's a choice and it's accurate as far as it goes, right? He has one criminal conviction for driving under the influence, which is a kind of every person, every man sort of a conviction. It's the kind of thing that people can kind of relate to. People don't love it. One would hope that during voir dire, during jury selection, there was some inquiry into whether people have such strong feelings about people driving while intoxicated that they couldn't fairly hear a person's testimony. But if that was his only conviction, in my view, that's pretty petty. And you can elicit that and get past it. I mean, I have to tell you, I was so curious about Grosskreutz that, you know, I tried to do a little research into him online, however accurate that might be. But I mostly wanted to see him. He's kind of a handsome guy and he was dressed nicely. I don't know what sort of figure he cut on the witness stand, but he must have been kind of appealing on direct examination, at least, although he's complicated. His politics are complicated. He's a Second Amendment you know, gun-carrying guy who apparently was licensed to carry a concealed weapon and just had let that license lapse, you know, which isn't great. That's something that you could anticipate the defense is going to exploit. And I actually think it was more complicated than that. I think that his license had lapsed because until just a few days before the trial, he had a felony conviction and that felony was expunged, but he couldn't apply for renewal of his concealed carry permit because until very shortly before the trial began, he had a felony conviction. And some of the press made a bit of hay of this about a week after he testified that that felony was expunged very shortly before the trial began. I see. Okay. So that, well, that's interesting. I don't know what the truth is. I don't know whether in fact it was a lapse. He forgot he was neglectful and could have renewed his license or he was barred because of either a felony accusation or a felony conviction subsequently expunged. Be useful to know whether it was witting or unwitting that he was carrying without a proper license. One would think that I don't know is not a good thing. One would think the prosecution would have uncovered that in a way that 
connected the dots. But, you know, when I was listening to him on direct examination, I thought he was kind of appealing. And I thought, okay, well, it might make sense. He's kind of a strange combination of political ideology. You know, he's a gun guy, but he wears these sort of hipster earrings and he's filming for the American Civil Liberties Union. And he was engaged in some of the protests because he felt strongly about the shooting of Jacob Blake. Like the whole picture is so interesting. I feel like it's another slice of Americana that I find fascinating. You know, maybe I've spent too much time on the East Coast, but he's an interesting character. And I thought, Eh, you know, carrying a gun and carrying a concealed gun in the back of his waistband as a paramedic in view of what paramedics do and some of the dangerous circumstances he described. I thought he sort of normalized that and didn't seem so scary. I think the fact that it was a handgun as opposed to an AR-15 was helpful. And he sort of drew that distinction himself, I thought, effectively when he saw these guys on the street with long guns, which was really interesting because it sort of distinguished what he was carrying from what they were carrying. And it sort of underscored how fierce those weapons are, I think. And, you know, I don't know. I liked him on direct. I thought he was decent. Did I think that the prosecution seemed to have prepared him thoroughly? No, not exactly, because there was more leading. By that, I mean the prosecutor was asking more leading questions than one is generally, A, allowed to do, and B, is regarded as effective. You really want the witness to do the talking in the witness's own language. And, you know, I felt like Binger was being more controlling than he would have been had the witness been fully prepared, unless the witness wasn't entirely on his side. And Somewhere in the middle of cross-examination, I actually began to kind of wonder, where's this witness coming from? Why is he conceding so many points so easily? It was a little bit of a mystery to me. I don't know whether you felt the same way. I felt like he was very much a prosecution witness, but that he was worried about perjuring himself and about having told untruths to the police. He didn't want to get caught in a situation where he was prosecuted for perjury or jeopardized any civil complaint that he might have. But more than anything else, I think he was locked in by certain statements that he had made to the police and did not want to at any point admit that he had lied or he had consciously told an untruth. Yeah, I think the latter, that latter is what he kept trying to slice it with some subtlety. No, you know, I wouldn't exactly call it a lie is what he said. I don't think he was at any risk of perjuring himself. Exactly. It would have been better for the prosecution to get out those inconsistencies. It would have been better if the prosecution had said, you know, when did you first talk to law enforcement? And what did you tell them about what had happened? And was that entirely the truth? Why not? It was almost as if Binger had never asked him the question before and wasn't really aware of the depth of his inconsistencies between his testimony and his previous statements. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
In the second part of our conversation, Abby and I tried to discern why prosecutor Thomas Binger failed to anticipate so many of the defense lines of inquiry in their cross-examination of Gage Grosskreutz. Binger did ask him about whether he voluntarily showed the officers his video, whether he voluntarily gave them a statement. And then he kind of made it like he wasn't even aware that his lawyer had stopped cooperating with the police. And none of that was true. And in fact, what struck me was that if Binger had known about this stuff, he probably would have gotten out in front of it, but he didn't appear to even know it. I find that hard to believe, though. He had to know. He had to have the same law enforcement reports and statements that the defense had. I don't really understand the decision-making. Did he think the defense wasn't going to thoroughly review all the statements and line up the inconsistencies? I mean, it was a fun and kind of easy cross-examination, frankly. It's the kind of cross-examination that you love as a defense lawyer because there's the witness can't escape. The contradictions are what they are. They're different statements. It's bewildering to me that Binger didn't take the sting out of all that stuff in the first instance and then, you know, let the defense have the kind of remnants of it. Did I think it was credible he had a lawyer and that Binger did not elicit testimony about the $10 million lawsuit? That's shocking. That's really foolhardy because it's classic motive and bias evidence. And of course, the defense is going to essentially lead with that. That provides a lens through which the jury can regard everything else he says as motivated by getting rich quick. Again, I really don't think Binger prepped the witness that thoroughly. I mean, he- But doesn't he, he has to know. They have staff. Wouldn't he say to his paralegals or his detectives, do me a favor, either talk to this witness yourself or go over to the courthouse, see if any lawsuits have been filed by him. It's so easy. It's such easy investigation to do. If he failed to do that, if he was a, if he was a private lawyer or a court appointed defense lawyer, it'd be malpractice. Yeah. You have to know if your witness has filed lawsuits. I'm sorry. That's just beyond a rookie mistake. And beyond that, Binger didn't appear to know that Grosskreutz was going to say that he didn't start shooting until after Rittenhouse started firing at Jump Kick Man. And that was really shocking to me. And so I guess I wasn't as surprised that he didn't prep Grosskreutz with the picture of him pulling the gun out of his holster, you know, the various pictures of him with the gun in his hand. It really did strike me, Abby, that he didn't prep this witness well enough and wasn't clear on exactly how he was going to testify. I also think that that showed itself when he didn't hone in on the most emotional part of the testimony. And I felt the most compelling part of the testimony, which was Grosskreutz Kreutz's terror as he was about to get shot. And when you look at the video, you see Grosskreutz move towards the defendant, towards Rittenhouse, but he doesn't go directly at him. It's almost as if he's walking past him. And I have not yet seen any clear image of Grosskreutz pointing the gun at Rittenhouse. In fact, after Anthony Huber is shot, he's almost cowering and seeming to try to walk on a diagonal across Rittenhouse. And Rittenhouse is training his rifle and sort of following him as if it's it's target shooting. That's wonderful. What you're saying now should have been at the heart of the direct examination, a slow motion recounting of that. There was some of that. 
and it was gripping, but it went fast of Grosskreutz crouching, of Grosskreutz's description of himself holding his hands up, of feeling that he was about to be shot and maybe killed. That was gripping. I mean, is a prosecutor allowed to prep a witness? Is a prosecutor allowed to look at the video with the witness and talk through with the witness? Of course, any good prosecutor would have gone over. And I think that Binger at this point knows the video that's out there really, really well. So he should know what he wants to use with this witness. He should know how to play it. He should know how to stop it, how to slow it down. And that's a really nice way to prompt a witness to talk because there's no leading questions. There's just the witness commenting on the video that captures what's happening. Yes, of course. So, you know, this is sometimes an area of contention in legal ethics. Is there a line between proper preparation of witnesses and witness coaching or what used to be called horse shedding? Because I think in the 19th century, the way that witnesses were prepared was to take them out to behind the courthouse in some sort of shed. Conventional American law practice includes serious preparation of witnesses. You'd be regarded as a not very competent lawyer if you didn't prepare your witnesses. Now, that having been said, it's not always easy, especially on the defense side. You know, people don't like to be involved in court cases. And so when defense counsel and our investigators go out and try to find witnesses and round up witnesses and prepare them to testify, it's it's not always easy. I have to say that the prosecution has a much easier job of doing that. You know, not only do they have detectives and, you know, other law enforcement, but people tend to be a little more intimidated by a prosecution invitation to come into the office in advance of a trial or a hearing to be prepared. And there's nothing wrong with preparing. There's nothing unethical. It's part of competent, effective law practice. And I'm surprised because Grosskreutz could have come. There should have been several sessions and he could have brought his lawyer if he wanted. No problem. In fact, I think good prosecutors, when witnesses have retained counsel, will try to collaborate with counsel and try to get the counsel on board, which makes sense because whoever's representing Grosskreutz is pursuing Grosskreutz's interest. They've been retained to serve him. And it seems to me being a good witness at this criminal proceeding was in Grosskreutz's interest, both with regard to avoiding any sort of repercussions. I'm not sure perjury was a realistic you know, threat in this case, but whatever, it was in his interest because he had a little bit of you know, criminal problems to testify well and curry favor with the government. And likewise, although it wasn't quite as seamless as the defense suggested on cross-examination, successful testimony in the criminal case would serve him very well in a potential settlement with the city over his injuries. I assume he sued the city of Kenosha for something along the lines of failure to protect him, you know, failure to have sufficient law enforcement out on that night or what have you. But yes, the short answer to the question is yes, he should have been thoroughly prepared by Binger or by somebody else in the office. Doesn't even have to be Binger, but he should have both practiced a direct examination and he should have practiced cross-examination. What Binger should have done is what we in the defense bar do regularly whenever we have the time or resources, which is to practice both direct and cross while bring in colleagues to pretend to be opposing counsel and conduct a cross-examination so that the witness is prepared for that. One thing about Grosskreutz, it didn't seem to me that anybody had told him the following. When you don't understand a question, say, I don't understand the question. When the question can't be answered with a yes or no, 
say that, say, I can't answer that question with a yes or no. When you can't exactly adopt the questioner's language or word choice, say that, say, no, I, you know, for Grosskreutz, I wish he had said, no, I wouldn't call it a lie. Here's why. It was fast and furious and it was frightening. I thought I was about to lose my life. And so I wasn't a very good recounter of what went on when I first talked to the police. I was still frightened. I was a little suspicious. And so, no, I really wasn't at my most clear-headed or my best. That would have been a decent answer. You have to be prepared. I cannot believe the number of times Grosskreutz said, correct, 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 on cross-examination. It's it's the cross-examiner's dream to have a witness who accedes to every question that's being asked. It was a little surprising and suggested that he hadn't practiced that, that he was a bit cowed. Well, we're going to get into the details of the shooting next week. But before we go, I want to dig into the prosecution's preparation for this case. And, you know, you've said on a number of occasions, you're sort of surprised that the prosecution didn't offer a plea in the case. The more that I listen to it, the more I believe that they didn't know enough, that they didn't prepare enough to know that they were going to face a lot of obstacles in getting a conviction in this case. You may be right, because Binger should not have been surprised by anything Grosskreutz was testifying to. And again, I find Grosskreutz to be kind of a good witness. Is he a perfect person? No. Is he complicated? Yes. But it's like a little slice of American life. Nobody is perfect. Everybody has flaws and faults. But you bring out the stuff about a person that ought to make a jury believe them. And there were reasons to believe Grosskreutz, I thought. But it's like the prosecution kind of handed him over to the defense to be pilloried. And pilloried he was. And I don't exactly understand that. I would have thought that Grosskreutz was the kind of witness, he was the only witness they had who could say what was really going on and could describe Rittenhouse as out of control. Even the stuff, you know, and it's all on videotape. The defense had some fun using the video that showed Grosskreutz, you know, sarcastically mocking Rittenhouse, you know, calling him a, a stooge for offering medical assistance. You know what? There's nothing wrong with that. It was left out there to suggest he was somehow, you know, arrogant or hostile or aggressive. Instead, he was, you know, being sort of appropriately snobby about his life's work and this guy out there who's pretending to be something he's not. He's a boy. He's a lifeguard. And if that had come up on direct examination, it could have been dealt with so much better. You know, why'd you say that is what you say to Grosskreutz. You know, why'd you mock him? And he could have said, because I know what it is to be a paramedic. And that's not who this that other guy was. It was kind of frightening for him, him to hold himself out as such. You know, it offended me. He could have said that. I think people in the jury would have understood that. The only last thing I want to say is Gage Grosskreutz is a really interesting witness. I want the viewers to be thinking about, could something more have been made of him? You know, why does it feel like the defense is going to prevail in making him be a totally unsympathetic or unbelievable witness when he almost got his arm blown off? You know, he could have had his head blown off. Right. And he had a weapon in his hand and he never once seemed to be ready to fire it. No. And I thought he was at his most compelling when he said, I'm not that kind of guy. I have it to protect myself, but I'm not the kind of person that would want to take another person's life even to protect myself. That's just not how I live. That's not my code. 
is what he said in so many words. And I actually thought that was believable, did not come across as braggadocio or phony to me. All right, Abby. Well, thanks again. And we'll talk again next week. Okay, great. Great. Talk to you then. That brings to a close this weekly recap of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us next week as we resume our look at Corey Shirofsky's cross-examination of Gage Grosskreutz, including the defense questions about the moments immediately before Kyle Rittenhouse shot Grosskreutz. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.